I'm known as a bit of a double wishbone fanboy. I, I probably can't hide my bias. Um, it's definitely my preferred um, suspension layout. Today on the HPA Tuned In podcast, we have Grant Hosking, who is a mechanical engineer and co-owner of the company Honed. Honed, for anyone who doesn't know what they do, essentially specialize in a range of upgrades for I would guess you'd say small commuter cars, things like Hondas, MX-5s, stuff like this, or Miatas as you guys in the US call them. A lot of their stuff is really focused around, uh, I would say, suspension, uh, really finding gains in areas of the car where probably a lot of aftermarket suppliers, I would say, aren't servicing the industry properly. And I think, you know, talking to Grant today, it was really interesting talking to him about um his approach really again understanding things from first principles maybe rather than going down the beaten path of what a lot of other manufacturers or aftermarket suppliers are offering any takeaways from yeah i think most people when they're first getting involved at the enthusiast level and not really diving too deep in like grant obviously has uh they sort of go down that initial path of well we're going to fit some uh, conventional coilovers and their consumer grade coilovers not really designed for racing well we're obviously going to lower the car let's uh pull the car ride height down 25 or 50 millimeters and that lower ride height is obviously going to give us gains because as everyone knows the lower the center of gravity uh, the better the car is going to handle and there's a little bit more going on there as well particularly when we start considering roll center height and how that's affected when we lower the car for sure and i and we're going to get into it in a lot of detail in the interview today but that's that's a really common misconception i mean it's, it's absolutely true you lower the car you lower the center of gravity that's great for a fundamental perspective fantastic there are there is some bad stuff that comes along with it and i think one of the other things as well i think we touched on there was um talking about you know people sort of complain about factory style suspensions when you take them to the racetrack and all oh, the cars the cars crap because you know on a racetrack the suspension is no good for the racetrack but you know a lot of the well, all of these car manufacturers they're not really designing these things for this purpose as well and this is really about trying to put these things back into a sensible working window maybe trying to recover some of the hard work we've undone by just completely screwing around with the, the fantastic suspension that someone spent all that time designing yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 easy to overlook the fact that when a car manufacturer's got the drawing board in front of them, performance on the racetrack is going to be seldom their their main motivation, and they've got a very different set of requirements and uh, targets than what we've got in the aftermarket. So, obviously, there's the potential to improve that, and uh, home developments are doing a pretty good job of creating some products that that are uh, targeting that market. So, yeah, really interesting discussion with Grant. Absolutely. There was uh, an Instagram post I wanted to touch on that I think is probably of interest to a lot of people. Using uh, video as part of your data analysis. So what I mean by that, you've got some sort of onboard camera inside the car. Uh, you're making use of it, usually in conjunction with some other log data. Now, a lot of people will already understand, you know, in principle, what log data is all about. It's about recording sensor values from sensors. It's about going ahead and looking at those on a laptop screen after a session, understanding, you know, how much throttle you used at this point, how much brake you used at this point, this sort of stuff. Where video is really a whole new dimension. It gives you a lot more context to a situation. It, you can understand maybe a little bit more of what the track conditions were like, where the car was placed on the track, if there was any traffic around you at that point. And I find in uh, in my experience, certainly when you're dealing with maybe people more on the more amateur end of the spectrum, 
adding video to your logging system is can be a really massive advantage. It really can. Uh, it's certainly a lot more easy to understand, a little bit less abstract than staring at a laptop screen with lots of squiggly lines on it. I wouldn't say it replaces data, but it certainly adds it. adds it. another uh, dimension. And I mean, I'll just take from my personal experience uh, for some of our course data, uh, stuck me in one of our cars and then a professional driver from Highlands, Damon, and the log data, the overlay with the video was really eye-opening, particularly into uh, one of the very high-speed parts of the track uh, called the bus stop, which you're around 200, 210 kilometers an hour. And, and just the, the turn-in point and how aggressively Damon was turning the car, very, very clear on video, uh, but much more difficult to really dive into if you're just looking at some squiggly lines. Yeah, absolutely. You can often do some stuff with driving, anal driving line analysis with log data, whether it's about um, using, sometimes you can even make use of GPS, but certainly things like your rate, lateral accelerations, steering inputs, you can learn some stuff, but you really can't argue with the video. And it's very clear to see there's a lot less post-processing involved. You can just look at it and see what they're doing which um, I think is useful for anyone. I think as well, the, the channels you just mentioned, uh, your steering angle, they're great, but uh, particularly if we've got a budget logging system, for sure. probably not going to have that. And my, my sort of take on it has always been, at least when you're getting started, less is more in terms of channels, less things to confuse matters. And uh, a few people listening to this are probably thinking right now, well, that's all great, but I don't have $5,000 sitting there for a logging system. But we don't need to spend anything like that, do we? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there is a huge range of options out there these days um, and probably the most affordable is just using regular cell phone. You know, these things have a huge amount of capability built into them. They've got GPS, they've got accelerometers, uh, they've got a camera built into them, they've got this fantastic screen onto the front of them so you can even use it to get live feedback while you're on track. Uh, there's plenty of people out there offering uh, really good apps that in the scheme of things, you might be talking anywhere between 10 and 100 US dollars, you get a huge amount of functionality out of it. Now, it's true that there are a lot of, uh, you know, there are some restrictions on that. Then you're not going to get the same sort of uh, level of detail or um, of course. some of that really high end features that you get with a proper logger. But if you're just getting started, you know, there is, this is a no brainer for getting into it. I would also be very surprised if most enthusiast drivers, maybe weekend warriors, couldn't drop a second off their lap time. Uh, by using even a basic uh, app on the cell phone. So For sure. very, very low-hanging fruit. Uh, in terms of that as well, if you are interested in learning more about data, uh, we do have a couple of data analysis courses. We've got our data analysis fundamentals course, which is a perfect place to get started. Uh, gives you some really good insight into what goes into data analysis. And we've got a step-by-step -step process in that course as well, allowing you to go through methodically, analyze your data. And again, I can guarantee results with that if you apply the lessons learned in that probably the cheapest lap time uh, you'll ever pick up and uh, to make it even cheaper we do have our podcast code so you can use the coupon code podcast 75 at checkout that will give you 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course and you can find those courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses with all that said let's get into the interview and see what grant has to say so tell us a little bit about uh who you are where you're from and uh, maybe a little bit about Honed as well. Sure. So I'm a, um, an ex-Kiwi living in Melbourne. I've been here for five or six years now. And uh, I've got a aftermarket performance parts business called Honed. And we make um, a bunch of specialist parts for tuning what were originally commuter cars and turning uh, turning them into um, motorsport vehicles. So we focus on 
Honda Civics, Honda, Honda Integras, CRXs, and uh, as of recently, we've been moving into uh, Mazda MX-5s and the NA and NB platform specifically. Cool. And what about your background? Are you a, uh, what's your training and has it, how did you get to this point? Yep. So I attended Canterbury University in New Zealand and um, did the uh, mechanical engineering degree there. And then since then, I've had a um, day job career in um, product development and uh, product engineering. So has the motorsport thing always been an interest? You sort of didn't go into mechanical engineering with motorsport as the end in mind? I think so. I've always been um, a hands-on kind of person. So on the spectrum of engineers, from from analytical engineers to hands-on engineers um, uh, at the uh, at the hands-on end, I spent my teenage years doing mountain biking like a lot of other Kiwis, and I was into downhill mountain biking. Those those bikes are really technical. They have these amazing suspension systems, and I think it was it was from there that I got um, and working on those bikes that I got my interest and that took me through into doing a mechanical engineering degree and then a progression from there into, you know, motorized vehicles like motorbikes and cars and that type of thing. And you seem to be pretty much Honda focused. There's a bit of a hint in the the business name there. So kind of how did the love for, for Honda come about? Probably I sort of uh, fell into it with my first vehicle in Australia being a, a VTIR Integra. At the time I bought it, I knew that the chassis had a reputation for being a great handling front wheel drive. And that's all, really all I knew. And then uh, after attending some, some sprint events and track days with the vehicle and experiencing what it's like to drive um, at the limit, I was, I was hooked um, like a lot of people are. Some people think that front wheel drive vehicles or they have this um, they have this preconceived idea that front wheel drive vehicles are not very interesting or lame to drive on track. Um, but if you've driven a well set up one, you know that's not the case, and you can get a, you can really get a lot of a lot out of them. So I, I want to come back and talk about that front wheel drive, rear wheel drive uh, concept in a bit more detail because you're absolutely right I think um, front wheel drives incorrectly do maybe have a bad reputation I just want to dive back a little bit that transition from uh, university here in New Zealand to to moving to Melbourne and buying your, your first Integra uh, pr- prior to starting uh, recording here you were telling us uh, a little bit about um, a, a complete custom uh, car track car project that you were involved in can you just tell us a little bit about how, how that sort of panned out Sure. So I was unlucky to be going through uni at a time before Canterbury initiated their Formula SAE program. But being still mad interested in motorsport, I had to find another outlet. And I wanted to learn um, about motorsport suspension and braking systems. And the best way I knew how to develop those learnings or to get that experience was with a hands-on project. So I embarked on this two-seater sports racer project um it even sounds silly to me when i when i talk about it now thinking that i had the thinking that i had the capacity and the, and the funds to be able to complete such a thing but um yeah somehow i had the the confidence to, to just get started so what i did so was mo- mo- most kiwis are in their back shed uh shoehorning a peripheral ported 13b into a dx corolla and, and you're building a le mans prototype car pretty much i mean yeah i was in i was in canterbury at the time you know the 
um the the home of john britain so maybe maybe the, i don't know the there was a bit of that spirit there so also just for the record there's nothing wrong with the rotary decks <laughs> <laughs> oh um, much love for the rotary yeah, definitely so um what i did was i just at first i consumed a, a bunch of the literature on vehicle design and engineering so books like engineer to win the carol smith book um one that was like super um super heavy duty which is the race car vehicle dynamics the millikan and millikan book um went through that cover to cover and then for aerodynamics it was the race car aerodynamics by um joseph katz um so but with sort of those three books together um i then started um drawing up and, and modeling this uh this vehicle in solidworks and that was great for a, a number of reasons not just that i could visualize this this vehicle coming to life on the screen but also it gave me like a huge number of hours on SolarWorks and really built up my skills and 3d modeling um, and you know simulation that type of thing um so i i had this uh i knew that i was going to have to keep some components based on um like oem components so this vehicle was going to be a mid-mounted with a transverse um engine and transmission i picked a honda b16 funnily enough um and then i had the front suspension was based on mx5 um front knuckles and the rear suspension used um, aa a80 supra uh rear wheel bearings and then everything was fabricated around that all right um, wow hmm. it had uh it had pushrod suspension and it had uh rockers uh, rocker actuated um, springs and dampers I had uh, the anti-roll bars actuated from the rockers, which was which was quite cool. Um, and one thing that was that was quite elegant, an idea. Uh, looking back on it, was um, I actually had the bump stops, uh, the bump stop set up, so it was uh, the rockers would activate or would would act on the bump stops rather than um, bump stop loads going straight through the the springs and dampers. And what oh, okay. that and what that allowed me to do was have um, the bump stops effectively in parallel with the ride springs and then i had this idea that i could tune the shape of the um tune the shape of those bump stops to achieve you know different uh different feels based on aero loads and all that kind of thing um so for a um yeah so i had some kind of interesting ideas or i took that took that experience to investigate a bunch of advanced concepts when it came to suspension um and then now um years later when i'm working with developing production-based vehicles um a lot of the um you know that that good understanding that i developed early on um is really you know really pays dividends when you're looking at a much simpler production-based suspension system sure what do you think gave you the it's, a, it's an absolutely enormous project for anyone to undertake whether you've got <laughs> you know a lot of resources behind you or people working for you even like as a huge project what do you think what gave you the balls to be able to start something like that? Like, do you think it was, you didn't kind of know what you didn't know at that point or, you, or what was it? I had attended, um, so I was part of MotorSoc, the Canterbury University's Motorsport Society. And through that community, I attended a few of their track days and saw other people driving around with production-based vehicles. And I thought to myself, you know, looking around, people would pour tens of thousands of dollars into, you know, something like an Evo or a WRX. And you could see that the, the money spent to the lap time potential um, sort of because of the inherent weight of the vehicle 
because it was based on a production car, that it was never going to be as fast as, like, say, even a Formula Ford or a Formula Atlantic, those types of things. So you could see how if the um, if the weight of the vehicle, the lower the weight of the vehicle, um, the faster its you know optimum lap time potential would be. So I think I there was some idea in that, and uh, that's that's where I started. And I just broke it's it. Certainly, a, it's certainly a strong concept. How do you feel looking back on it now? I think. I think if I had, I think the, the step that I missed, um, as an engine, like that, uh, more experienced engineer would have done would, would, would have been to look at the running costs, uh, would have been to look at the total build costs, would have perhaps been to look at the time involved. Um, and maybe those factors would have, would have cancelled out, um, you know, purely chasing lap time potential. Hmm. I think that's something as an enthusiast or an engineer is always so easy to overlook. We sort of get excited about a project and, it's difficult, if not impossible, to really calculate all of the hours that are going to go into or getting to that finished product. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, hats off to you. It sounds like an amazing um, journey, which has obviously also paved the way for what you ended up doing a little bit further down the track. Just without trying to get too far ahead of ourselves, just because you brought that up, I mean, this is something I saw through my tuning business with a lot of my customers. Uh, they'd get involved in track days and they'd have a production-based car, be it a Honda Integra, uh, a Mitsubishi Evo, whatever it might be. And they'd take it to the track a couple of times and they'd set kind of whatever their benchmark time was. And then, of course, the bug bites and, and you want to go faster. And time and time again, I saw them come in for modifications to make more power to the engine which is fine because we sold that but uh what, what's your philosophy if you're looking at improving lap time where's the best place to sort of focus is it suspension is it uh engine power or is it you talked about weight as well <laughs> these days cheapest bang for your buck <laughs> these days my my first answer to that question is is actually seat time <laughs> um and uh, a lot of people do say that, and there's a reason for that. It's because uh, when you spend, once you've spent some time uh, in the mo- in the motorsport environment, whether it be grassroots level or professional level, you see the difference that the driver can make to 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 the vehicle or to a vehicle. Um, without a doubt, money spent um, getting seat time gives you the best bang for the buck. After that, um, you know, really goes into tires would be the next biggest thing um and then and then it's sort of a uh cascading hierarchy of 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 what you can achieve versus your budget i guess it's it's difficult to put a blanket statement around this is where you should spend your money but what i always did see and i've fallen into the same trap myself over the years is um if you've got an evil handling car and you go and chuck more power at it, it just makes all of those evil traits that much worse so i think if you can start from a a good handling base point then it's going to be easier when it does come time to to adding power that's exactly right um so uh, we we talk a lot about these days we talk a lot about with our components uh creating predictable handling cars um if the car's predictable it's easier to drive it's going to react uh, what you're trying to do is um end up with a car that reacts the same way um every time and so the driver can have more confidence that they know what it's going to do ahead of time. That's right. Um, so I guess if you one one thing um, 
or one statement we could say is uh, we try and look for if the vehicle's got an extreme setting in any one particular area, we try and sort of even those out. So if it's got, for example, uh, really stiff springs on one end of the car, we work out you know why that is. Um, is that is that actually giving you the right? Um, is that unnecessarily compensating for something, or is that unbalancing the car and um, an extreme in one area, be it a, a sway bar, or a spring rate, or error, whatever the case may be? Will tend to make a uh, will tend to reduce the predictability of how that car drives. Sure. All right. So I think that pretty much covers your, your background. I just wanted to go back and talk about that uh, that design process you went through. Uh, so let's let's come up to speed now. You, you've you've moved to Melbourne. You've bought your Integra, and you're getting involved in some track days. I think that's where we we left you off. So yep. talk us through the the development of that car and and what became apparent. Sure. So, um, I, I think what's one of the important things about my experience is that, um, when I first moved to Melbourne, I didn't have this, um, I didn't move into like a group of all these Honda owners and enthusiasts that had, um, shelves of parts or sort of people to influence, influence me on what parts to buy. And so I was sort of isolated from, from a, a larger Honda community in that way. And, so what I ended up doing was sort of applying my engineering um, processes to the vehicle, and by that I mean, first as an uh, as an engineer as an engineer, you try and like define what you're working with, and for me that was um, measuring you know the corner weights of the vehicle, measuring the suspension geometry of the vehicle, um, looking at the um, looking at the trying to create a specification for what the car was. And so I went through that process and in doing so found some interesting things about the roll center setup um, of the car, particularly when it was at the lowered ride height that I wanted to run and um, most people run for those chassis. Just before, I want to interrupt you there because I think it'd be really useful for, to talk through the uh, influence and meaning of roll center for people, maybe if someone's not so familiar with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, could you give us maybe the 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 one minute uh, lesson on everything we need to know about roll center and roll center height? Yeah, well, it's um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> roll center is roll center is quite hard, quite a hard concept to to sum up in few words because it's not something you can point to. Um, you're talking about a, a this sort of virtual point in um, a virtual point in space. What it is is it's the it's the, the point in space that the vehicle will um, basically roll around or the center of gravity will, will pivot about. And you can have a front roll center and a rear roll center. Um, the axis that runs through those two points is what we refer to as your the roll axis of the vehicle. And that's, um, that's quite important with uh, the way that the, you know, the vehicle responds, how it feels to drive. Um, that kind of thing. Now, the the key one of the key things there is um, the relationship between the roll center height and the center of gravity height is quite key to how much the the car is going to roll. And of course, a production car has X roll center height front and rear. And uh, can you talk us through what happens when we lower a production car if we're completely ignoring roll center? Obviously, every car is going to be different, but more 
can you talk us through what can happen and what your experience was? Yep. So a standard car will have a roll center height of, say, 70 millimeters above the ground. And then when you lower that vehicle, that roll center height can go, um, it can either go to like 20 mil above the ground. It, it typically drops, um, but it can also, depending on the suspension design, actually go below the ground plane as well. And then you can end up with this scenario where you have this uh, substantially greater offset between the roll center and the center of gravity of the vehicle. And what that does, that what that'll do is then promote more more body roll at that um that end of the car so the, the bit i wanted to get in there that's easy to overlook is everyone thinks that when they lower their car it's going to handle better because we're lowering the center of gravity and of course yes we are lowering the center of gravity but what you're just mentioning there about roll center height which is the part that's so easy to overlook let's say we lower our car 50 millimeters and obviously by virtue of that the, the center of gravity is now lowered by 50 millimeters but depending on the suspension geometry the roll center height may actually be lowered by 70 millimeters 80 millimeters 120 millimeters and and that's giving that larger longer lever arm so that causes the excess body roll that's great it's uh the two the amount that you lower the car and the position of the roll center are not necessarily uh linear linearly linked and it's probably fair to say when it when you're dealing with something like a, a factory road car, when we're lowering it for motorsport use, suddenly we're taking it sort of outside the bounds that the manufacturer intended. So it's not necessarily the, the suspension designers that made this car have no idea what's going on. It's that now that we're operating in a different window. Um, so we're really just sort of kind of correcting back to the original style of geometry. Would you agree with that? Uh, that's a great way to that's a great way to phrase it. So a lot of the vehicles they have a suspension design that's perfectly adequate for what they were originally intended to do drive to the shops drive uh, on highway at highway speeds that type of thing when they get substantially lowered um, different wheels different suspension components um, you're you're then as you put it uh, the suspension's then operating in a completely different configuration I think it's also really important to, to always keep in mind that a production car, the manufacturer's intentions are, are probably not to have handling performance at the absolute top of their list. So, I mean, they've got a, a laundry list of, of things that they're trying to tick off and probably the, the outright grip and performance and handling balance of the car is like quite a long way down that list. So obviously in the aftermarket, we've got the ability to rejig that list a little bit to suit our own priorities. That that sort of correct? And, and not just that, but also they're um, compromised by, um, so they're, Suspension geometry could be compromised by packaging, by um, NVH considerations. Like, as you mentioned, these could be some of the things that the OE or the original vehicle designers would prioritize above performance. Um, it also varies by, by brand as well. So, so the Hondas that we've been talking about, they have a, um, a more expensive and a more, and a suspension design that lends itself to, um, to performance. A, a little bit more so than say Toyotas, um, particularly front wheel drive Toyotas of a similar time period that have a cheaper suspension design um, and that has more compromises for for, uh, for motorsport. Uh, are you talking there the Toyota typically McPherson Strut whereas uh, double wishbone is quite common in some Honda platforms? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So the, the similar vehicles from say Toyota or Mazda at the time, front wheel drive ones, they would be a McPherson strut front with a 
with a beam rear axle um, compared to the the Hondas that we play around with, which are double wishbone at the front and then a um, quite advanced trailing arm system in the rear. Okay. So you think there's no, uh, it's not an accident that the reason people like and enjoy Hondas, there's some relationship there between being double wishbone? I like to think so. Yeah, I'm a bit of a. I'm known as a bit of a double wishbone fanboy, and um, and uh, yeah, it's. I, I probably can't hide my bias. Um, it's definitely my preferred um, suspension layout. Can you sure. give us like the real quick sort of rundown on the pros of the well, what makes double wishbone so much superior to McPherson strut for motorsport use? Um, so things you can do with double wishbone, you can fully tune your. Your, your roll centers, your camber gain, um, your um, your track width change over through um, droop and compression. It's also structurally um, a, a stronger design. So in a McPherson strut, the the strut itself has to deal with um, all of the the bump loads and the uh, and the lateral forces. Whereas mm-hmm. in a double wishbone system, you're you're isolating the the damper and the spring from from taking those um, structural loads, if you will, um, and that allows the the spring and damper to do a more effective job of of uh, what it's intended to do. And then you can have the the wishbones and the knuckle um, taking care of the geometry and the um, and the structural loads as mentioned. So that that was a nice little diversion down onto some of the one hundred and one and a few components. And I know we're going to come back to a bit more of that stuff in more detail later on. Let's get back onto um, your journey on the Integra for a second. Let's finish that up. So I'm in Melbourne. I've got this DC2. I um, I meet a fellow uh, engineer, a consulting compliance engineer uh, by the name of Tom, and he turns up to, to my day job um, to offer his services to my employer, and he's driving this, uh, this, this black EF2 lowered, on yeah, three-piece wheels with uh, 200 treadwear tires and battery battery triangle on the bonnet and toe stickers on the front and rear bumpers, and I see that I see him pull up on that and it perks my interest and and I ask him whether he attends um, you know if he does does track days in the car and and he says that he does and he's part of a club and uh, and then I you know press him for more details find out how to join this club and and eventually end up at starting to attend their events. Um, at first I I take my fairly stock um, uh, DC2 to along um, and and yeah just have a ball up at uh, Winton Raceway which is uh, um, one of the really popular tracks here in Victoria and uh, just um, I guess at first you w- when you take a, an otherwise stock car to the track you you find a um, sort of a lot of performance limiting um areas of the car really early on so for me the main ones were the way the car handled it it felt like um my impression of the car was that the it felt like the rear had a lot of um sort of inertia and would 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 sort of swing around uh, particularly on transitions and sweepers that kind of thing and i think it was that that idea that really sent me down the rabbit hole investigating roll centers and ultimately correcting that geometry Um, also in other areas like the, the braking system. Um, I felt that the um, the original boosted system was was really sensitive, particularly um, when used with high friction pads. And uh, ended up yeah developing a, a manual brake conversion kit for the chassis yeah, based off that idea. 
when you talked about that sensation in the rear feeling like it probably took a while to settle and it had a lot of inertia um is that something uh is that was that because you'd lowered the car or what sort of configuration was it in at this point so at that yeah that time it was like this the starter pack track days Civic or Integra, so it was, it was lowered, 15 by 6 wheels, 200 treadwear tyres, um, basically a, a standard alignment and um, some, some uh, high friction pads in the front, and I was ready to go. So in terms of, of going back through and finding out what was causing these handling aspects that you are feeling and not liking, what as an engineer, you come about it from a slightly different perspective than the average enthusiast. So, uh, yeah, talk us through what you did. So, I, I guess a, a, a typical person or, or um, would would walk, walk around the pits, find someone with the same car as them, and say, "Hey, my car's doing this. Um, what would you recommend?" And take in a bunch of recommendations, go away and make changes to their car based on that. Um, be, yeah, with, I guess, maybe the arrogance of an engineer, I just wanted to work through the problem, um, yeah, using, using, you know, suspension principles and using an engineer, more of an engineering process. So I knew that the, the chassis inherently didn't have a, doesn't actually have a lot of weight in the back of it. So I knew that the sensation that I was feeling couldn't actually be induced by, by inertia, inertia as such. So, um that is it was with with that uh in mind that i um went and looked at um the suspension geometry model that i had and started looking for what could have possibly been the been the um the cause and the conclusion that i came to was because the the rear roll center had um was lower than the front and my and the the thought was okay well because um, it's got a longer roll roll moment or a larger roll moment at the rear of the car that could be contributing to the to the uh, to the sensation of it of it um, not wanting to rotate or perhaps being lazy to um, react to uh, changes in direction and uh, I did try you know I did experiment with putting a um, a larger rear sway bar on the car which was the um, traditional wisdom and that does help but a sway bar doesn't necessarily um unless it's you know very very stiff doesn't necessarily help you on um initial to like initial turn in um i find that sway bars tend to be more of a um a mid corner to to corner exit um tuning tool because they do take a bit of um a bit of rotation a bit of um, articulation before the the rate starts to become significant and that's not necessarily what you get um when you're going from steering wheel straight ahead to um to to transitioning into a corner and that was really the um the part of the corner entry uh that i felt needed uh needed some attention or that's where i was looking for improvement so is it it's fair to say as well that trying to fix this problem with the rear roll center height by using a stiffer anti-roll bar is kind of like a a bit of a band-aid that's going to cause some some other inherent issues that that you don't really want um that's that's right so the the stiffer you go with the rear anti-roll bar obviously you're making the rear suspension less less actually independent and uh, on that particular chassis it's got this uh, really nice trailing arm system as i mentioned 
to me making uh, putting a really stiff rear roll bar between the those two um, trailing arms and making it turning it back turning it into a, like a beam or um, that type of suspension system you see on the the cheaper um, chassis just wasn't something I was willing to succumb to unless it was the absolute last resort. But ultimately, the the problem you sort of found by going through looking at all of that geometry was this rear roll center had been lowered significantly more than the front. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So that's so that come that comes about because the the way that the trailing arm is located, it has a a long uh, lower control arm. It has a relatively short upper control arm, sure. um, and when you lower it, the uh, the short um, when you lower it significantly, the short upper control arm angle um, you know uh, increases great at a greater rate than the than the lower arm, um, and that's sure. what what contributes to that um, drop. So you obviously found a way to you obviously went down the path of doing a roll center correction in the rear. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, and then maybe the difference in sensation that you felt once you made that correction. Sure. So what we what we did is we spaced down the um we made a like a sheet metal bracket to relocate the um mounting pivot point of the lower control arm onto the trailing arm and the analogy is like a uh, at the front of the car we could we could buy off the shelf um, extended front ball joints so that's a was a at the time an off the shelf solution for the front suspension and we were doing a, a um a similar modification to the rear was there much around at the time in terms of rear roll center correction for that chassis? It's not something I've really dived into myself. Um, no, so we're the only ones that have done it. Wow. Okay. So it there, seems like quite so, quite an oversight by everyone else. So the um, so there, there, but over over the years um, since since we did it, we've seen some records of of other companies doing it. So it was a time when ProDrive. Um, in the in Europe, prepared a, a DC2 chassis for a touring car um, championship in Europe, and we've seen photos of the underside of that car, and um, they did rear roll center correction via, or they tuned the rear suspension geometry in a similar way, um, making modifications in their case both to the inner subframe and the trailing arms. Mm. And what did it feel like once you made that correction? What sort of sensation difference did you get in the car? So. As a from the driver's seat, it, it just feel, it feels like the um, you get that uh, the sort of the initial rotation that I was looking for. It also feels like when you're when you when the once the car has taken a set that it's it's quite uh, adjustable, if you will. Um, some of the things that we yeah we um, other ways we t we talk about it is that um, so one of the ways that you make a front wheel drive uh, particularly fast is you. You set it up so that it rotates well through the corners um, and then um, rotates to such a point that you can accelerate again and um, get out of the corner down the, down to the next straight. Um, what we found was that it would, um, uh, in, in conjunction with getting your your, toe, your rear toe alignment settings correct, you could the, the chassis would now rotate really well. Um, was controllable and, and, and progressive uh, mid-corner and then uh, lined up really well uh, on corner exit. And again, it had that um, predictability to it that uh, didn't you wouldn't necessarily get with either a really uh, a 
trying to achieve the similar effect with really high rest spring rates or with a really stiff rest waiver. Are there any downsides, any negatives with doing going up in the rear roll center like this? Not not really as such. I mean, apart from the the actual work that it takes to make the modification and mm. you know perhaps the cost. Yeah. Is some of this as well kind of readdressing the the general front wheel drive handling balance uh, and obviously here we're dealing with a chassis that is still angled towards performance use but at the end of the day at least in my experience the majority of front wheel drive chassis uh, off the showroom floor have that sort of inherent understeer uh, as a as a handling balance which is is fine because that's that's safe and and pretty easy for most drivers to deal with but that's what you're talking about with this term you're, you're, you're saying rotate into the corner so you're trying to basically reduce that understeer and get the car to be a bit more neutral that's 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 um, a lot of what we're looking to do with our suspension setups for front wheel drives we're trying to get the car so that it's um so that it's more rotation uh, more basically more prone to to rotation and oversteer than 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 understeer um they they actually um, they actually don't really understeer as such when when set up correctly. We run a lot of our vehicles with a front uh, with tire stagger, so we run them with uh, larger or wider front tires than than rear. Um, and there are, and that's just another way that we build in an, an inherent um, uh, sort of oversteer bias, if you will. Uh, we also do that with the alignment settings um, as well. Can we dive into the alignment settings? Is there any sure. secret sauce in there? So what, what would you sort of recommend for your average Honda track day uh, setup? What, what are you running? Um, there are some, because, because again, because of that double Wishman suspension, it has a, it has a camber game curve that, that the McPherson strut cars just don't, uh, don't benefit from. Yeah. So you might yeah. be able to get away with um, less static camber or different, um, like for example, on our Hondas, we can get away with running zero front toe uh, because we can tune the tow curve really nicely um, on a McPherson strut car or something that doesn't, uh, where you can't actually tune the tow curve, you might have to run static tow out to get the car to actually hook into a turn. Um, that, so that, you're using that term, sorry to, to, to kind of, just before we get too much further into it, uh, that term tow curve, you're basically talking about the, the, the tow change of the tyre as it moves through bump and rebound. So essentially... Uh, bump steer for one of another term yeah so that's quite a um it's a bit of a you'd probably notice that i specifically didn't mention bump steer or I use did. that word um because it's a bit of a misnomer um old you know like vehicles that have um vehicles that have steering boxes there when they bump steer the you know both wheels go one direction um that's sort of what i think that's what i correlate to the to the word bumps there I, I think very few people uh recognize that a vehicle with a rack and pinion steering when it's bump steering the the two wheels are going both in the same direction you know both in the same direction either towing towing in or towing out um and yeah. they, you're not necessarily getting a, a a jerk of the steering wheel um that's not actually what's happening in that situation if you're getting steering feedback or kickback um, in a rack and pinion car, that's more likely something to do with, say, scrub radius or um, how the wheels are tracking over the road or that um, maybe caster related, that kind of thing. Uh, that's why I try and veer away for and, and not necessarily use the term bump steer because it, 
doesn't quite convey what we're trying to talk about. Um, I, I think I think the the key point there is bump steer is kind of has a, a negative connotation to it, and that's what most people kind of think of when they hear that term bump steer. But I I, I admit I have a small sample size, but every car production car that I've I've checked has. Uh, probably more measurable bump steer than you'd expect so what you're really doing here is saying this toe curve not bump steer mm-hmm. uh, you're using that as a tuning tool what well, everyone uses it as a tuning curve yeah. uh, t- tuning tool sorry um so honda actually design in a certain amount of toe change and a certain toe change direction um, in all of their chassis um from the from the front wheel drive ones and even s2000 um that kind of thing and it's not, and it's not unsubstantial, and uh, you can actually, um, you can negatively affect that as well with different modifications to your car. Um, Could you just talk through the how you might use that toe steer? Um, and just to be really clear for people, what we're talking about here is basically the toe of the wheel changing as it moves through its suspension travel with the steering wheel uh, straight ahead on the front axle anyway, right? It's, it's this thing's turning. This thing, the, the toe angle's changing because of the suspension movement, not necessarily because of a steering input. But could you maybe talk through, when you talk about using um, toe steer as a tuning tool, what sorts of ways you might use that at the front axle and how that might be different from how you might use it at the rear axle? Sure. Um, so on a front axle example, uh, a... Um, so you, you, you probably you may both be familiar with, and if the readers aren't, I'd um, encourage them to go and look this up. But the uh, the the lateral um, the lateral load that a tire can generate is related to what slip angle it's currently work, you know it's currently operating at, and the that it's for that reason that um, some cars will uh, have better have better turn in or um, pit mechanics will set them up with a bit of toe out um, to start with um, statically. So the the wheels, the front wheels are actually both pointed outward. Um, and then when you go to turn the wheel, um, you've each wheel's at a slightly different slip angle. And what you're trying to do is is uh, get one or either or both wheels into a better part of its slip angle curve and then therefore generate more lateral load. Um, with, but there are downsides to running um, substantial amounts of well, toe out or substantial amounts of toe out, and that is straight line stability and stability under braking. What if you have? But if you have a car that where you can have um, a toe out compression um, setup, what you can do is you can run zero toe static. So when you're accelerating down the straight and you're coming into your braking zone, you've got zero toe effectively. You've got stability and you've got specifically stability under brakes um, but then when the car starts to compress and you start to um, get into the corner entry part of the phase it's actually getting into that toe out um, uh, it's actually got a bit of bit of toe out and you've got the benefits of um, getting each tire into their respective uh, optimal slip angle phases and that's really what you're trying to do so you're trying to get um, you're trying to get the best of both worlds. You're trying to get straight line stability and then peak lateral load performance and, and turn in performance. Um, that's what you can do with, with uh, toe curve tuning. So it sounds like when you're talking through that sort of corner entry, mid and exit phase, it sounds like maybe you're talking about using the rear toe quite extensively as well. Obviously, you've got a lot of heave change. You break, the rear comes up, but then 
once you start loading the car, as you say, the rear starts compressing as well as the front's already compressed because you've been braking. So would you say that you would typically spend more time tuning the rear toe behavior compared to the front? We, so what's interesting on the Honda platform is if you actually increase caster, um, because they have a, a ball joint um, outside of the wheel style knuckle, it's a really long knuckle. When you increase caster, it actually drops, uh, effectively drops um, relative to everything else, the, the outer steering point. And that has the effect of changing the toe curve and actually bringing the inversion point from toe out to toe in into a usable suspension range. And then what you end up in that situation is with the car, with the with the knuckle where it toes out for a small amount of compression and then it actually starts to toe back in again. And that's undesirable because you've it, it's creating a it's creating an inconsistency effectively, and that goes against this whole idea of developing a predictable a, a car yeah. that does things predictable predictably. So if we're going to have um, so if we're going to have toe change uh, with suspension movement, we want it to always go in one direction ideally, so that it's always doing the same thing. It's not going toe out and then back toe in again. Um, that's going to be zigzagging all over that uh, that slip angle lateral grip kind of uh, chart effectively. So um, Hondas will, because of this uh, unique lay knuckle layout, Hondas, um, when you increase caster, are actually prone to, to that issue. And so um, that is something that we do correct for. In the rear, however, um, the when I mentioned about the, the trailing arm design being quite uh, quite special, one of the things that's really interesting about it is it's designed to be toe-in, um, uh, have have a, a toe-in um, toe curve through bump and compression, and it's actually quite resilient. doesn't matter how much you lower the car, you, you can't really affect that. Um, so. Right, so that's not something you'll be tend to be tuning too much in the rear of a Honda anyway. It, it's because it's got it's this uh, it's got this short little um, compensator link design and that uh, builds in from Honda. Honda have designed this in to be this way. Um, this 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 toe toe in um, trait because if you don't have that in a front wheel drive, uh, you can end up with a car that's very oversteery um, and and not necessarily in a good way, like in a oversteer and then you can't catch it kind of way because the your outside tire is um is uh sort of loses loses its uh loses its grip and it never gains it again so i i guess so far what we've learned is um you can't generalize all front wheel drives and uh what works on a honda is probably not going to work well on on another type of front wheel drive uh, you've talked about this this toe curve and the other term you you brought in a little while back was uh camber gain and and the reason why the Honda doesn't need as much static negative camber, and it is a relatively simple term, but for for those who maybe haven't heard of of that, could you just quickly explain it? Yep. So that's the rate of change of camber gain with um, vertical displacement um, into compression, or you know, if you start all the way from the bottom of the bottom of wheel travel, um, a double wishbone suspension design can be set up to gain quite a lot of camber. It's one of its key advantages. Where some McPherson suspension designs will actually lose camber, so they'll have a negative camber curve, um, and you've got to compensate that for running really aggressive static camber. Um, 
And, so um, you're actually sacrificing your tire contact patch in a straight line because of that excessive negative camber just to get the camber where it really needs to be under compression on the outside tire in a corner. That's right. And Tim, you might be able to speak to that from your experience with like the V8s and stuff. They run a lot of static camber. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, every every tire is really different. Um, it's sometimes in professional racing, the, the luxury you've got is a lot more information about the tire as well. So you've got the tire quite well characterized as far as, you know, having a sort of mathematical representation. And what I mean by that is, you know, what sort of uh, slip angle and, and camber and pressure numbers you, you're really looking for because you've got the science to sort of back that up. Um, and that particular tyre, and well, what it was in supercars when I was there anyway, was uh, really quite, as far as other race tyres, it was quite camber hungry. Like it really, it loves camber. Um, and But you, if you're running on a particularly smooth circuit, um and you, it sort of depends. One end of the car is locked in, the other end of the car, so at the rear of the car, of those cars, that you're quite heavily controlled by rules. Um, the geometry, you while you can adjust it, you've got the geometry that the the series mandate for you. Uh, at the other end of the car, it's quite uh, quite open. So on a really smooth circuit where you, maybe you don't have a lot of suspension travel because you're trying to keep the aero platform in quite a close window, uh, you may end up running a lot higher, st- or a lot higher static cambers just because you're not going to be like, getting that gain from having all the extra travel. Um, whereas, you know, you might well see on a street circuit where you're spending a lot more time on sort of point and squirt where you're braking for these slow hairpins and then want really strong drive out of them. That might be a case where you might tune that camber gain back. And all that means is that because you're suddenly on this really rough surface, you want the car to be able to absorb and be really compliant of these rough surfaces. Um, and if you had that really large camber gain, you might run it, say, a smoother circuit. Suddenly your camber's going to be going crazy, you know, because you might be using two or three times the amount of suspension travel that you were on a smooth circuit. So it's really, um, you know, case dependent. Certainly, you know, I think the number one parameter there of, of how much camber gain you want and can get away with is really about... Um, how rough the surfaces that you're running on obviously if you're running on a smooth racetrack all the time it's I, I would probably argue it's less of a, a less of a um a significant parameter but um you know a lot of us are are running on rougher surfaces as rough tracks as smooth tracks as tracks with big curbs and potholes and all sorts of stuff especially at this end of the world so you know <laughs> it's um so, sorry is, 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 is a knock-on effect of this at least on that honda platform if you're if you're basically saying that you can run zero toe at least at the front and a relatively modest amount of static camber because of the camber gain that's going to beat up on the tire less so you're going to get less degradation as well mm-hmm. yep definitely and that's that that's part of the reason why you want to run less extreme alignment settings um if you can and it's all about tire life tire degradation tire how much heat you're putting into it sometimes you've of course you're wanting to encourage more heat but uh, mm. typically for the tires that we run or the tires that our, our customers run there's there's sort of three camps there's 200 t- treadwear street tires there's um like around the then there's around the sort of 140 treadwear or below um what would people refer to as uh semi-slicks and then there's like your 40 tread wear hoosiers and that type of thing and mm. at each three levels you've got slightly different um, considerations what we uh, in the grassroots area don't benefit from is we don't get the information on from the from the tire at the to the quite same degree as um, you get at the professional level so 
sometimes we might only be lucky to get a um, a recommended like pressure range or recommended um, surface temperature reading um, to try and target for, but we don't get um, at least as uh, literature supplied with the tires. We don't get hey, this is what camber range it likes to run in, and that's where you do unfortunately have to learn from experience and um, and talk to people uh, in the pits and find out who's running the same tire as you. Um, what kind of luck they're having with, or what kind of, uh, not luck, sorry, but uh, what kind of performance they're getting out of the tyres at different alignment settings and then try and move yours into that similar window. Um, but as a rough rule of thumb, obviously, the the, the more um, aggressive you go in terms of tread wear and um, carcass design, typically they'll take uh, a bit more, um, a bit more, bit more camber um, to, to get the same lateral load or much greater lateral load. Are you using any tuning tools actually at the track as well to help you with optimizing things like your uh, your camber and your tire pressures? We do. We use um, yeah tire tire parameters and um, and we have like a alignment gear that we can take to the track with us and um, change alignment settings at the track. And in terms of that pyrometer, you uh, you're looking at just a handheld sort of in the pits or something that's actually on board? No, just handheld in the pits, okay. three readings across the tire, um, and just taking those, um, yeah, yeah, basically going from a session, come back in, um, and trying to get as relevant as data as possible. Sure. I, that tires is something maybe I'd like to spend a little bit of time on. It's something, for me, they're probably the most complicated and interesting part of the car. You know, they're, they're crazy devices really um and you spoke about you know the sort of diff- three different roughly camps that your customers might fit into was you know something more akin to a street tire a semi-slick and then like a full-on slick what what sort of uh diff car setup differences would you tend to see you mentioned a little bit about camber there but would you would you say that the car setup that suits each one of those or across that span of types of tires does it vary a lot or are people pretty much in a similar style of setup window maybe a little bit stiffer with more grip with more grip a bit of tire under them but you know whether it's balance or roll center transition or toe steer or, or whatever um so it's that's depending on what tire people are running we make a recommendation of a of a spring of a different spring rate range and that all comes from the suspension frequency target that we might be looking at. So for example, we've found that 200 tread wears work well um, in the suspension frequency range, so 1.5 to 2 hertz, whereas something like the AO50 in a medium compound or Hoosier um, like R7s need to be more in the the 2 to 2.5 hertz range. Um, What that translates to exactly on your chassis, that's where you've you've got to do the mass, you've got to look at your motion ratios and, and work through to your... Um, to finding out what your actual springs are, but what we what we do is we actually we actually recommend um, those spring rate ranges to our customers um, because we know the Honda chassis well and we've done that mass for them. Um, Could you just speak a little bit about the concept of suspension frequency and what that means and how you're sort of generally using that to calculate your spring rates? Sure. Um, so your it takes into account your your corner weight. It takes into account the motion ratio of the suspension. And it's a way of, um, it's a way of, it's a way of co- compensating for the fact that you've got 
Um, you might have a car that has a, a front engine car with a suspension layout with the spring orientated in some in some manner, um, and that could be very different for what from what's at the back of the car. For example, in our cars we don't have an engine back there, so the rear axle weights are a lot lower than the front. Um, the and the the rear suspension layout is actually quite different as well. But you want the car to be um, you want the car to have the same sort of stiffness at the wheel or at the tire that sort of it's about this how sort of um stiff or the suspension is at the actual wheel itself um it, if that sort of makes sense yeah so it's kind of in terms of you kind of normalizing your suspension stiffness relative to the mass you're supporting at that end of the car because you're looking <laughs> that's for a, similar that's sort a of much response. yeah that's a much better way to put it yeah <laughs> it's it's interesting i'm actually just in the middle of writing a sort of suspension course at the moment for High Performance Academy and oh, so, you, so you had that one just start sitting off the top of the head <laughs> yeah he's just I, looking for I his did. opportunity to drop, yeah. drop some knowledge <laughs> make but, himself look smart but it's it's interesting reading maybe I've been being, doing a bit more reading around maybe cars that are a bit closer to road cars which is something probably less in my wheelhouse than most of what I've done and it's interesting I've been seeing quite a lot of people talking about uh, using maybe a slight offset in frequency between the rear axle and the front axle. And I think this is something you see coming up in, in road car literature quite a lot as far as, and I think a lot of this is about bump recovery. You know, the front axle hits a bump before the rear axle does. And, you know, the front and rear axles are offset. They've got a wheelbase distance between them. And it's about trying to sort of get the front suspension and the rear suspension to settle at, a, at the same rate. So what, but, you know, I've seen, I've seen quite a, a few people, you know, arguing both directions. It seems de- definitely more on the OEM side this this idea of a maybe slightly higher target rear frequency relative to a front seems to be quite popular and and lots of people say don't worry about it so what's your take on that with any of this sort of stuff especially when you're starting from like looking at it from an analytical nature it can be subject to change once a driver gets behind that particular car on track and then they, they want to induce changes based on their personal preferences but if um but we would we would sort of start with that yeah slightly higher rear um, frequency just and then and then um, adjust to suit driver's preferences from there. Ultimately, the car's only going to be fast if the car and driver feel comfortable together and that whole combination works. Um, but if we didn't have to consider the driver, we would we would start with um, set up that slightly uh, higher rear um, uh, suspension frequency because of that sort of idea about bump recovery. Um, as a percentage, how much should the rear be be, be higher than the front? Uh, that's not something that we that we follow an exact science on, um, mm. and it can come down to far more practical things like what springs we have available, what springs the customer might have available, that kind of thing. For sure, for sure. There's certainly a lot of parameters to take into account there. I think what what's probably important to bring in here, which which we say quite a lot, is that. There isn't a lot of black and white when it comes to the motorsport industry and, <laughs> and there's a hell of a lot of shades of grey. But uh, from from what you're saying there, basically with your experience on the Honda platform uh, plus you know, going through the, the design analysis, you can at least give people a ballpark to get started in, which is, of course, the hardest place for, for people coming fresh into a platform that they don't even know where they should be to get themselves into the ballpark. So that's going to fast track things. They can then validate that and make adjustments uh, based on their own personal preferences. Mm-hmm. That's that's a huge part of, that's where I actually see the, the largest value that um, what home 
provides to people is that they're, they're, they can fast track a lot of the R&D that we've done by um, either putting together. Um, so a lot of our products, um, we've, we've touched on a, a couple of them, but we do a roll center kit. We do a, um, a front tie rod kit for the, um, the steering geometry correction. And then alongside those components, we also um, have a you know, list of um, accompanying recommendations, those being spring rates, those being sway bars, those being alignment settings. And the customer gets not just the components for modifying the hard points of the vehicle, but all of that accompanying and supporting information. And that's been a very important thing for, for both um, you know, my partner, Tom, and I to put together in our offering to customers because if you just have the physical components but you don't know what to do with them, the entire package is of little value to you. Um, and if you can get someone um, and get them into you know, a, a performance window that you can quote unquote guarantee, um, that's worth a lot to someone as a starting point. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we see this with a lot of popular platforms. I think maybe maybe the Honda market is more saturated than most, but there are so many companies out there making products for just about all aspects of handling performance for a honda but i mean whether they've actually gone through the process that you've gone through or whether they're alternatively just making a shiny product that they can sell and and it's fit for a purpose but maybe isn't going to get you uh the the exact result so sticking with something that's proven where all of the parts also work together uh can it's probably not going to cost you any more money and, and the results on track could be worth a huge margin in terms of lap time as well. The analogy that I've used with, with other people is we sort of take an approach to suspension that other people might take to, to engine building and putting um, where your intake, your camshaft, your head, your compression ratio, your pistons, your exhaust manifold, all of those things need to be considered holistically. You, mm. you, you can't just chop and change you know, one component necessarily. Uh, without understanding how it's going to affect things upstream and downstream. And that's the way we approach suspension. So we know what part of the suspension system we're maybe providing a solution to, but we also want to explain how that works with everything upstream and downstream of it. Um, so we've like put together some guides about like how to think about setting up your vehicle and those loosely follow the format. Um, you know, understand what your what your application is are you doing track days are you doing wheel-to-wheel racing um or, or is it a, a dual duty car so are you um are you wanting to drive it on the weekends and maybe do only two or three track days a year um so understand what you're doing with the car and then um that will sort of set the how extreme you may want to go with the suspension setup and then start from your chassis and maybe geometry considerations and then go through ride springs, then sway bars, then alignment settings and put it all together. What do you think um, to the biggest mistakes people tend to make when they're approaching, you know, I think for a lot of people listening to this and, and for a lot of us that are involved in club racing as well, like a lot of people are using their car for a commuter and for a, for racing as well. Um, I, I know you brought up before talking about how you thought seat time was probably one of the, the more underrated uh, things people could do to help their track performance. But what do you see as the sort of biggest mistakes or holes people tend to fall into when they're trying to use something like a dual purpose car for doing a little bit of racing here and there? For a dual purpose car, so 
one thing that I see quite often is people like stripping out their interior and it just makes the car horrible. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> make it much, uh, much faster. Um, looks like a race car though. It looks like a race car. And look, hey, if that placebo <laughs> effect is what gets you stoked and what gets you out to the track, then, then I'm all for it. Um, but, uh, but more often than not, people sort of regret that. Uh, interior is one of those things that is really fast to remove and really time consuming to try and put back in um so that's never quite goes back in the it, same way it came out <laughs> you and you'll never get rid of the squeaks right yeah. um that's 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 one uh, another one would be um using uh like building your or or putting your track um your track car strategy around uh getting like old tires or seconds tires from someone so quite often hear that one people will go well i'm going to run this wheel so i'm going to run this wheel size or i'm going to do this and that because such and such is going to give me cheap seconds. And you can imagine that, well, there's a reason that sometimes tires are cheap seconds and, and you can end up chasing a huge amount of um, sort of handling hills because you're actually just using tires that have heat cycled out and doesn't matter what you do with springs and shocks, the, you're never going to be able to make up for the fact that the, that rub is just not uh, going to be giving its best anymore. Um, so, yeah, there's probably two main ones um mm. two really simple ones to 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 look out for um yeah don't pull your interior out and spend your money on tires pretty pretty That's much advice, yeah. for, for, for the dual duty car and then if yeah. you're talking about um cars are a little bit further down on the on the preparation spectrum um i would say things like uh making too many or biting off too much of a project at once um is a common thing um uh, I like to break things down into phases. So trying to bundle things together and only doing like two or three jobs on the car and then being able to take it back and, and drive it again. Um, and then, and then sort of progressing through it that way. That way you're always okay. getting regular seat time and, um, the car, you, you, do, you lessen the risk of losing motivation and all that kind of stuff. I think the other part of that, that's really easy to overlook. And again, I saw this, oh, Let's be honest, I've done it myself, but I saw this with a lot of customers that um, go and make uh, eight changes at one time and then go back to the track and try and figure out which of those eight changes improved the car and, and which of them went backwards. So, I mean, sort of basics of scientific principles, if we can make one single change at a time and assess the effect of that change, we're going to really uh, set ourselves up to know whether we're moving forwards or backwards. And you have to be honest with yourself as well. Like, are you good enough at driving? Are you consistent enough at driving to actually be able to tell the difference between what you just changed and what you had before? Um, for, for an amateur or for myself, you know, rule of thumb, I try to, try to adhere to and definitely don't always adhere to this, but trying to do, you know, two or three events with one setup before making a change. Um, and, uh, and in recent times, what I do after an event is I, I do a track map and, I'll write notes, um, what the car did at various points around the track. And it takes a couple of events before you can start to look for trends in those notes and go, Oh, okay. Well, it's always, it's always in these types of braking scenarios that such and such is happening or, um, such and such, uh, you know, handling, um, trait seems to be consistent across, um, similar corners or, or that kind of thing. One thing I was interested in Grant, when you guys are going through and developing your parts and, and also when you're doing racing for yourself as well, are you guys making much use of data analysis, log data, stuff like this? We do. We do. So we're, we're big on validating um, 
the benefits of our products if we can or changes that we make to our cars um there's three main things that we've done so with our with our air guide kits which are a, a brake cooling product we actually uh, used a, a friction type thermocouple directly acting on a brake disc and we was able to log in real time as the car was going around the track the the temperature of the brake rotor and we then we could compare um the side of the car that had an air guide fitted and a side of the car that didn't and we could look at the the temperature trace difference um that was um a really cool example um of uh, of yeah of, of using data data acquisition um we often get the people saying well why don't you use uh flexible ducted um style brake cooling and having this uh we've got it written up as an article and being able to point to that and be like well we've actually measured on track in real time the impact of uh of, of the air guides and they do work and they um do reduce peak um, brake rotor temperatures um it's just invaluable because because people can look at that and go oh well it really does um it's very hard for people to visualize and we've probably talked about this before it's very hard for people to visualize anything that involves airflow or um airflow through vehicles and uh you really need to be able to quantify what you're talking about it's probably also a really underrated uh, as far as difficulty a really underrated problem how difficult it can be to actually fit sufficient ducting through something like a road car that wasn't designed to have a whole lot of flexible hosing chucked in it somewhere you know as far as not running into the tires or struts or bodywork or whatever yeah so that was that was one um one application another one was um when we were looking at our brake modification parts we actually um wanted to it was really important for us to be able to to demonstrate and prove that the modification we were doing, which was to remove the brake booster and convert the car to manual brakes, wasn't going to have a negative effect on stopping distance. And we also wanted to know exactly what the pedal force change was going to be. So we we just set up and did the testing like you like you would. So we had a vehicle set up with a, um, a brake line pressure sensor, a force gauge on the pedal itself, and then we could use um, like a G- and then we used a GPS to look at and tr- um, check stopping distance and deceleration. And again, really great information to be able to tell people exactly, well, um, the car still stops in the same distance, if not less. Um, the pedal force increase was um, about twofold and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And what about when it comes to driving on the track as far as looking at the way you're driving and using that log data to understand technique? Is that something you guys have done a lot of just even from your from your own perspective, working on your own driving, yeah. oh, we run um, Race Chrono, the Race Chrono app, um, and we use the um, standalone ten hertz um, GPS receivers, and we look at um, we look at lap time data that way. So we look at minimum speeds, we look at maximum speeds, um, and we um, quite often do overlays um, of of data in different laps and and look at um, what worked in one session or another. Um, probably the most valuable point of that when you're looking at, say, improving your driving as opposed to just developing products is to compare against other people um, driving in similar vehicles and and uh, look at overlapping um, each other's laps and see who's faster in what area and where you've got to improve. Yeah, for sure. So as we start to look to maybe wrap up the episode here, is there anything else you think we sort of missed or 
something in particular you want to say about the sort of general area of of people tuning sort of maybe dual use cars or front wheel drive cars or anything else you think you need to talk about? Um, the, probably the last one is just uh, um, yeah, and people have got to always uh, consciously, I guess, remember to to enjoy the hobby and 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 not necessarily go super deep down the rabbit hole of of uh, modifying your car for for years on end without um, touching base and, and getting it out. Um, to events or, or or being able to drive it, um, and I find for me in particular, being able to drive my car regularly definitely helps with motivation to to get back into other tuning and modification type things. So, um, yeah, just definitely. I think that's a it's a dangerous trap that a lot of uh, enthusiasts fall into is just the never ending project car that becomes a garage ornament and and never actually sees the light of day. That's right. We've all seen it, and it's a it's a pretty big thing, and especially in the grassroots um, area, because people don't necessarily have the the cash flow or the business backing their their project to be able to just finish it all in one hit. So, um, yeah. So, what's next uh, for you and Honed? I had a bit of a look through your website before we talked today. I see you guys are offering obviously a lot of Honda stuff, a little bit of MX five or Miata stuff, a little bit of BMW stuff as well, like what sort of direction are you guys looking at spending your time on and, and developing parts for? So our next focus is on rear wheel drive conversions for K series engines. So we're, we're, um, we've just recently converted our NA MX five to a K 20 and using the six speed transmission from an NB Miata and then the same diff as well. I actually had that car out at Phillip Island, uh, yesterday. Um, unfortunately it was a really rainy, really rainy event but um we believe it's one of one of only uh, a really small number of right hand drive um mx5s with the k series in them um it was a particularly challenging swap with the steering rack um interfering with the exhaust manifold but um we've worked through those problems and uh yeah we'll be offering solutions to, to other people looking to do um rear wheel drive k series applications what other sort of platforms do you foresee coming down the pipeline the sort of most popular ones you'd think you'd be doing uh so there's e30 is um probably the next one and uh also brz's and frs's also uh there's there's engine mounts and, and transmission adapter kits becoming available soon awesome so one of the things we like to ask uh on this podcast is you know if someone's listening and they're interested in sort of following a similar path to one of our guests what sort of advice would you give to a younger version of yourself that was interested in doing something along similar lines to how you what you've ended up doing i would my advice would probably be to just um don't be afraid to start don't be afraid to do things in manageable manageable chunks do what you can do um and and yeah don't overanalyze things and uh yeah, look at everything like a like a learning experience. Right on. So, if uh, if people listening want to find uh, out more about you and Honed, uh, how can they touch base? How can they find you? So, two main ways that we you can get in touch with us is through our website, which is honeddevelopments.com, or through our Instagram page, which is honed underscore developments. Perfect. Right on. Thanks so much, Grant. There was uh, certainly lots of really good, interesting stuff in there, and uh, good luck with the good luck with the business. Uh, I'll look on with uh, with much interest.
Yeah, I feel like we could have uh, probably gone another hour on this, but uh, amazing. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Really appreciated the chat and, yeah, the opportunity to talk through some of uh, my history and the history of the business. Nice one. Thanks, Grant. Cheers. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.